Okay, everybody, welcome to this episode of The Big Questions with Big John. Obviously, I'm the biggest one here, so I'll say I'm Big John. And I can't tell you guys how much I've been waiting or looking forward to this particular episode of, of, of the podcast. Uh, I have a friend of mine. We go back to high school together. And this, this dude is somebody who fits right into what we do at Sports Grumblings. Um, let me introduce to you right off the bat, Daniel Schmutter. I just call, hey, him, Dan, I just call him Dan Schmutter. Hey, John, how are you? I'm fine. I'm, I'm so happy you can make it with us uh, today, Dan. Now, for everybody out there, let me just give you a quick bio uh, on Dan. Dan, is, and I'm going to look over here, Dan, just to make sure I don't miss anything. Uh, Dan is a uh, lawyer who devotes much of his practice to civil rights and constitutional law. And his focus is on the first, second, fifth, and 14th Amendment issues. Uh, he has submitted numerous briefs both to the Supreme Court of the United States, to the New Jersey Supreme Court. He's argued in front of the New York State uh, Court of Appeals, I believe. And he's appeared on programs such as uh, uh, with Judge Napolitano on the, the Fox Business Network. Basically, uh, it, with everything that's happening this week, who better to have on than someone who is versed in constitutional law and civil liberty issues uh, than Dan. So Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Yeah. Now, for those that may be wondering, well, how did someone like John end up knowing someone like Dan? And and the truth is, we go back to high school in New York City. Um, and uh, actually, what, what is considered one of the more elite high schools, Dan, would you say, in, in New York at the time? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, and... Um, not particularly, I, I don't remember running with your crowd that much in, in, in high school, Dan. I don't think we were on the debate team or anything like that together. But this is one of those weird cases where social media has actually taken old acquaintances and perhaps made better friends. Would you agree? That, that's absolutely true. It's yeah. funny how that works. Yeah, it's rare. It's usually the opposite. Usually Facebook, Twitter and such destroys friendships. But I think <laughs> right. I think in this particular case, it's, it's actually helped us out a bit. Um, now, um, we, I, I kind of told you what Dan does for a living and and and, and does well, uh, actually. So I'm going to turn this over to Dan and say, Dan, how did a nice Jewish boy from New York City turn out being such a libertarian? Crazy, right? No, yeah. I mean, I grew, I, I, I grew <laughs> up a, uh, a nice uh, Jewish kid from the Bronx. There you go. You know, my, par my parents were far to the left. And, uh, you know, I it's interesting because uh, you, you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, how, how and raise the issue of how someone becomes a libertarian. Yeah. One thing I've noticed is that people come to libertarianism from multiple directions. Um, I know a lot of people like me who came to libertarianism from the left, but in the course of, uh, you know, over my lifetime, I've met a lot of people who became to libertarianism from the right. Mm. Um, you know, when you, when you grow up in, a, in a New York City and you're exposed to uh, a lot of, uh, liberal uh, viewpoints. Um, what you do is you, if you if you're thinking in terms of libertarian ways, you start to realize how liberty issues. Um, you start to learn, like for example, I, I learned economics. Mm. I went to the Wharton School. I went to the Wharton School. I learned economics, and so learning economics helps you understand those kinds of issues from the other perspective, the other side. So you learn that liberty applies to both personal liberty issues and economic liberty issues, and it's the same. Right. Liberty is liberty. So the, you know, the ability, uh, issues of free speech, issues of 
you know, uh, uh, you know, marrying who you want to marry, things like that, are not materially different from a liberty perspective um, from having the uh, liberty to engage in economic transactions that benefit you and the person on the other side. Um, and so while so many, so much of our world is polarized into right and left, um, I know the, sort, of, sort of the old, it's the old uh, kind of uh, trope that um, uh, people, you know, liberals believe in personal liberty, but not economic liberty and conservatives believe in economic liberty, not personal liberty. Sure, that's an overstatement, mm -hmm. but there's something to that, right? I mean, as libertarians, we kind of embrace liberty in all of its flavors, mm -hmm. and so you, you know, if you started out on the left, you know, as a, a Jewish kid from the Bronx, mm -hmm. and you start to get exposed to liberty concepts of all types, you, you expand your understanding of what it means to appreciate freedom and liberty. And people who grew up the other way, people who grew up in very conservative environments and very conservative households, start to understand what liberty means more broadly and start to, to move and embrace the, the broader liberty concepts that you know, someone from the Bronx already you know, grew up with. So I find that really fascinating because I have so much in common with people who, when we were kids, started out with in very, very different environments, but came to the same place from different directions. Yeah, and that actually describes me. I mean, I evolved to libertarianism from the right. Um, and actually the thing that that always drew me, to, uh, quite honestly, to libertarianism started out with uh, 1A issues. You know, uh, I used to say, even when I was younger and foolish uh, and, and, uh, and a quote conservative, I always said, the one thing I can't go with conservatives on is how they want to limit people's speech. Like that was the one thing I always gave the left back in the day, it's not true anymore. But, um, but, and that's sort of what opened my mind to the possibility of, hey, what what is liberty, you know? And to your point, when you start to study economics, whether it's Milton Friedman or, or uh, Hayek or Mises, uh, you know, then you start to see where the, the threads of liberty and volunteerism and free markets start to step in. So I, I agree with you. It is a fascinating journey when you end up at libertarianism, not necessarily libertarian party with a capital L, but libertarianism, no, no. lower L, right? No. Uh, philosophically speaking. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about some of the, these really uh, hot button SCOTUS decisions this past week or so. But before sure. we do, what I think is foundational to this discussion, because you hear the word tossed around a lot, Dan, I know you and I kind of share the same um, definition of this word, but I want you to explain it to me, both from a philosophical slash moral perspective and also from a legal perspective. And that is, what is a right, Dan? When people say, I have the right to healthcare, I have the right to my body, I have the right to free speech. What is a right? What is and isn't a right? Well, I mean, properly understood, a right is a legal or moral claim uh, to demand something by force. Um, that's really what a right is. I mean, something if you can't, if you don't have the 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 valid claim to defend something by force and defend the ability to do something or to protect against something, uh, then it's not really a right. Um, and, and rights in the, in the libertarian tradition, typically people people under, people think of natural rights. Um, you know, in the law, you know, we talk about rights that are created by, let's say, statute or common law mm -hmm. or, or something like that. 
but in general, in the in the sort of broad philosophical sense, we talk about rights that are natural rights that we are born with, that we have because they're inherent in us. And we are born as free people, we're born as individuals, and because of our nature, that's why they're called natural rights, because of our nature, we have we have these rights. Now, that, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware natural rights, uh, uh, in the past, natural rights have often been uh, um, justified by reference to religion, uh, that, right. so that you know some people will say natural rights come from God, but you don't have to be religious to to appreciate or understand or or, or uh, believe in natural rights. Uh, atheists also can uh, you know can uh, believe in natural rights because of what I just said that natural rights derive and arise by virtue of our nature as human beings. So this would be something like a Lockean position if you're looking philosophically, right? Like the writings of John Locke would justify that. Right. I mean. Right. I mean, Locke is one of the, the, mo the most well-known um, uh, 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 writers regarding um, natural rights. Uh, it's, it's, he's a classic source of that, of that uh, tradition. Um, and, you know, people, it's interesting, I was just recently having a conversation with someone um, in which he claimed, well, um, where do these rights come from? Why, are the, why is such a thing a right? Why is life, uh, why is there a right to life? Um, and he, his view was problematic. If you if you think rights are important, his view was basically, well, these are rights or things we just all agree on, mm -hmm. uh, either by, you know by social contract, if you right. if you can make if you can make something coherent about the concept of social contract, or or perhaps more properly described as convention. Uh, the problem with that approach is that those aren't rights; uh, those are simply conventions. Those are simply things that people are willing to tolerate. Um, and the moment they're not willing to tolerate them, or the moment they decide that they're not something you want to have, you don't have them. Right. Um, and so the, the claim to rights has to have some sort of objective fundamental grounding. There has to be a, a claim uh, and, and a basis to, to argue for these rights no matter what. You don't have to agree that I have a right for me to be able to claim that I have that right. I assert that right through reason, and I'm able to show that because uh, I'm a, a, an independent human being, an individual human being, this right, I have this right, and so do you, and so does every human being. Um, rights have to be universal. If we care about the equality of rights, if we believe that people are created equal, then we have to be able to explain rights in terms of their equality and their compossibility. Mm. So everybody's got to have the same rights, but also, uh, there's the concept of compossibility, meaning that everybody has to be able to claim them at the same time. Um, and so, for example, uh, a right to material, to, to claim what, what some people refer to as positive rights, which aren't really rights, uh, but to claim these positive rights where you're entitled to stuff or you're entitled to someone's labor, um, that, does, that, that, that doesn't satisfy the compossibility requirement because not everybody can demand stuff simultaneously. Somebody's got to be the provider of the stuff if someone's going to be the recipient of the stuff. That violates both the equality concept because somebody's claim, uh, demanding that they be given free things while the other person is being compelled to turn over those free things. Right, so, um, right. so just to uh, jump in a second here. So for people that maybe are confused by big words or whatever, the way I kind of reduce it, uh, tell me if this is accurate, um, something cannot be a right that needs to be provisioned by someone else. Meaning that one of the arguments, if someone says, well, I have a right to healthcare or I have a right to housing, um, I, I don't, I always say, well, you have a right to live in a house, you have a right to access healthcare, 
but the provision of such means that a an entity has to force someone or something to provide it to you. There, therefore, right. it can't be a right. That's the way right. I kind of break it down. That's that's exactly the correct way of looking at it, right? If someone if someone is going to argue that healthcare is a right, what they're really saying, what they really mean by that, is that I have the right to compel by force exactly. someone else giving me healthcare. That that can't be that can't be correct because that mean that places the recipient at a higher priority than the person who's being forced to act. Exactly. Um, if you can, you're essentially enslaving someone else and forcing them to work for your benefit. Um, that's not equality, and that's not uh, uh, those aren't rights that people can all simultaneously exercise. So they can't be rights in any real sense or in meaningful sense of that word. Right. Now, let me throw out some quick quote rights and tell me what you think of them. We kind of address healthcare. Obviously, we have the right to life, as you said. Uh, we have the right to free speech, which to me always seemed self-evident, Dan, until I started hearing in recent years people say, well, you know what? You don't have the right to free speech if your speech offends me. If I take offense to your speech in any manner, therefore, it is hate speech, and hate speech is not free speech. And they always equated to that, in my view, silly trope of you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. So Dan, in terms of speech, not physical confrontation, do I have the right to hate speech? Well, you, you certainly have the constitutional right to hate speech. That's that's right. clear. You know, the, I'm not the, saying it's so, a smart so, right. I'm not saying it's a smart so, idea. So, right. So, so <laughs> right. many people misunderstand. And, and yeah, I know you didn't ask me about the First Amendment, yeah. uh, and it's a related issue, of course. Right. So you were asking a broader question, but I, I'll, I'll jump in with the, sure. this misunderstanding that people that so many people have, which is that there's some sort of hate hate speech exception to the First Amendment, which is not true. Um, you know, when when people ask about speech and free speech, I I try to direct them to John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill really laid out the case for free speech really brilliantly in On Liberty. And what's great about Mill's conception of it, I really recommend that everybody grab a, grab a copy of On Liberty and you can get it online, you can get it in the paperback, you can get it, you might even be able to get it in an audio book for all I know. But the, the case that he makes for, for the toleration of free speech, in fact, the, the robust support for free speech, isn't just based on this idea, oh, well, you know, people, people uh, don't know what's right. I mean, one of, the, one of the principal arguments for free speech is you never really know if you're um, correct or not, right? So, so if you suppress speech, there's always a risk right. that you may be wrong, and the other guy may be right. And so, you want to make sure that you have the ability to determine truth through speech. But that's not the only reason for for endorsing and supporting free speech. Mill says very interestingly that um, you can't, even if you're, let's say you're right. The other reason you shouldn't suppress the other guy in his quote unquote, incorrect speech is because without the other guy speaking adversely to your viewpoint, you can never really test or be sure that your viewpoint is true. Every time you defend your viewpoint against the contrary argument, it strengthens your understanding of the correct views and the correct positions. That's beneficial in and of itself, the ability right. to defend and constantly test your viewpoint against attack from a contrary viewpoint is beneficial to truth in and of itself. So there's, there's a variety of reasons why we protect speech, why it's important to have ideas out there that, that we can exchange and constantly test and constantly uh, correct and constantly challenge. Um, and so 
you know, it, it, it's, 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 crit it's critically important to our tradition. It, those concepts are embedded in the First Amendment. Um, of course, the First Amendment also deals with not simply the value of free speech, right. but it also deals with the power relationship between government and people. Right. Um, the reason we have robust rules regarding the protection of free, free speech also has to do with the suppression of ideas hmm. by the government. So that's an additional layer that's sort of uh, uh, an issue regarding the relationship, uh, the, you know, sort of our constitutional structure and how, as Americans, we have this very unique relationship with our government. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts there when it comes to legal protection for free speech, moral uh, concepts of free speech, intellectual concepts of concepts of free speech. Um, you know, and what what you correctly pointed out is that free speech is so heavily under attack today. People say, well, speech is violence. Well, speech is not violence. Um, you know, when, when you say things like speech is violence, what you're doing is you're, automat you're automatically taking speech and taking it out of the category of ideas and you're putting into the category of, uh, uh, of what we traditionally think of as physical assault. Well, obviously, if you can take ideas and pretend that they are physical assault, the whole concept of what you do with them changes. And that's why, and that's, there's, it's, it's intentional that people mischaracterize speech with this concept of speech as violence. It makes it easy to treat it differently than we understand how ideas ought to be treated. Right, and it also lends itself to, that, that sort of perception of what speech is, lends itself to the ability for someone to say, well, I don't agree with you, you're offending me, shut up. And no one else should hear this because you have no right to assault someone else. And to me, that's to your point. Um, if someone challenges me on any issue of my libertarian thought process, I am more than happy to sit and discuss it with them, as I know you are. You are you are one of the most incredibly patient people I've ever met on social media. Where you have times have messengered me and said, "John, you should calm down because you're not taking the opportunity to instruct someone." Right, and and I take your words to heart. Believe it or not, that I try very much to be okay. I'm going to explain this until someone gets. Um, nasty, for lack of a better term, right, where they're just hurling pejor pejoratives and, you know, whatever. So, but to the extent that it's, it's an old trope, but it's true. If your ideas can't be defended against scrutiny of others, of others' free speech, then maybe you have the wrong idea, or maybe your idea can't stand up in the marketplace of ideas where, hey, you know, so typically you'll see this where you'll challenge someone on their belief and halfway through the discussion, they'll say, shut up, that's stupid, I'm getting upset, you know, I don't want to hear anymore, that's nuts, I don't, you know, and then they just shut it down that way, right? Yeah, it's actually very interesting uh, what has happened in social media. So social media has simultaneously provided an extraordinary opportunity to get ideas out to the world. You know, it allows people to publish ideas without having to be a big newspaper, without having to own a TV station, without having to own a radio right. station. People can just get ideas out there instantly to yes. millions or billions of people. It's an unbelievable um, medium. And, and, you know, it reflects, um, it, it reflects one of those uh, kinds of things where we see the expansion of freedom in, in the human race. You know, technology generally uh, uh, advances human freedom in a myriad of ways. And this is just one of them. People can just get the ideas out there to everybody right. uh, immediately. But it, do, it also does something else, which, is, which I think people didn't realize, people didn't, probably didn't anticipate this at first, but what we're seeing is that people's behavior changes mm. on social media, right? I mean, imagine you're, 
at a convention or a party or a meeting and you're in a room with 30, 40, 50, 100 people, whatever, and you're talking. Um, and whether you're talking in a small group or you're up on stage, the podium, giving a, a, a talk, um, the things you say are, are constrained by decorum, by uh, uh, politeness, by the kinds of things you would say to people. Now, if you're standing right in front of someone, you're not going to be nasty to them, typically. I mean, some people would, but right. most people wouldn't. You're going to try to be respectful. You're going to try to engage them in a, in a, in a sort of normal, polite uh, conversation. On social media, all of that tends to, well, not always, but it frequently goes out the window. When the people are standing behind a, uh, sitting behind a computer screen uh, or they're sitting on their phone, um, all of those social conventions and constraints seem to go away in many respects. People become nasty, abusive. Um, they, use, they, they engage in name calling. And most importantly, they frequently don't feel the need to engage the person in any kind of rational conversation. Right. They just throw stuff out there. I can't tell you how many times um, people will do uh, what I like to call link explaining. Um, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll advance an argument and then they'll just drop a link as if that's an, a responsive <laughs> argument, you know? So I like, I like to say, well, no, no link explaining. Well, that's you the know. equivalent of hurling an encyclopedia at you. Right. It really is. Oh yeah. Here's this. Yeah. Um, you know, people, and there's nothing wrong with citation, right? I mean, mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with, if you have a link to a paper or to an article or to something that provides some support for what you're saying, that's great. But that's not the argument. The argument is the thing that you're trying to advance. So you got to make the argument and then say, "See here, see here at this link and support." Right? You got to you got to make the argument first. I, I, I can't tell you how many times someone will just throw drop a link, and I'll ask them, "Well, what does that say?" And they'll say to me, "Well, you read it. I'm not going to do your work for you." I think you have that backwards. It's yeah. not my work. It's your work. If you want right. to advance this position, then you got to do it. I'm yeah, gonna read, well, I'm gonna read your link to figure out what you think that means. It's I, crazy. I really, it is crazy, and I really think that's sort of symptomatic of this need we have as a society now. Is I think as critical thinking has declined quite. I know I sound like the old man. You know, I'm back in my day, but um, that this appeal to authority is the end all, right? So you know, Milton Friedman. I love one of his quotes, which is, "It's all about persuasion, not coercion. My job isn't to force you to think the way I do." my job is to persuade you that my way of thinking is more beneficial than yours or that I'm correct and you're wrong. Now, facts may bear us, bear us out to be, you know, wrong, but persuade me, give it a shot, talk to me, convince me, as opposed to like, to your point, here's a link, just obey, you know, do what it says, you know, where's the rational, where's the reason behind it? Yeah, people, people have this idea, and it, and it goes to both, and those are really, kind of, in a sense, two sides of the same coin, the ability to persuade and the ability to engage in critical thinking. People, uh, first of all, people are not trained in critical thinking anymore, mm. which is pretty awful. Critical thinking is one of the most important things you can be able to do. It, it's, it's, it's critically important in evaluating the information you receive. Right. You can't, if, you, if, you're, if you're not able to engage in critical thinking, you have no way of assimilating and, and filtering out and, and assessing the things that you're reading and hearing. And so you can be lied to easily if you're unable to parse through what you're hearing and determine, is it accurate, is it not accurate? Should I be skeptical? Should I not be skeptical, right? I mean, that's the first, that's the first stage. Right. I get a piece of information, I first have to assess how reliable is this likely to be? 
Right. Right. Do I even do I just accept it face at face value, or should I really start digging in and think and, and seeing whether this is whether this is accurate or not? And of course, the latter is almost always true, right? You should you should generally it's 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 unwise to accept things at face value. You at least have to give it that first screening to see how likely how reliable is this likely to right. be? How much checking should I do on this? Do I do a sort of basic level of checking or do I need to do a deep dive into this? But the flip side is you're right. The people people don't don't either have or care to have the ability to persuade. And for some reason people have gotten this misconception that the internet uh, absolves them of the obligation to persuade. And that's where this link explaining things come in thing comes in. People have gotten this idea that all they have to do is drop a link or a meme uh, or something. And it's self-explanatory and it's self-persuasive. There's no such thing. You know, the, the, the communication hasn't changed. Technology doesn't change the content of communication. Right. It just changes the method of communication. You know, we have this, we have the internet and it's fantastic. And we have social media and we have technology. You still have to make the argument. It doesn't make itself ever. Right. And it will never make itself. Right. No linking, no memes, no, you know, none of that stuff will make the argument for you. Right. But people, are, people get lazy. They think that the technology makes the argument self-execute and it's not you're absolutely right that's a that's a great way of putting it and i agree with you wholeheartedly um before we sort of move on from free speech let me give you a question in the context of the times which is when does free speech the expression of ideas become incitement to commit a crime I know there's a legal well, definition and there's probably a moral definition. Let me hear what you have to say on that. Right. I mean, there's two. There's uh, there's the there's the First Amendment standard for what incitement is, and then there's I guess just the concept of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate in terms of when you should be able to say things and not be able to say things. You know, as as you know, um, the the legal standard for incitement is very very hard to meet. Um, and, and it really, you know, people don't understand that people, people just sort of think that people will say, oh, that's incitement or that's, you know, fighting words or that's, you know, right. the, 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 the first amendment standards are very, very far to one end. And the idea is that you really want to avoid and prevent the suppression of speech. And so things like incitement have to be. Uh, immediate. It has to. It has to tend to uh, encourage the immediate resort to violence. Um, and so, even sort of a general call to violence is not going to be incitement. Um, you know, uh, someone can give a speech and say, uh, you know, I hate cops and I they're pigs and I, I think cops should be shot in the street. That's not going to be incitement. You know, um, it, 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 there's a there's an urgency and immediacy to it. Uh, in order uh, that's required in order for it to, to be considered potentially outside the realm of First Amendment protection. And again, there's a reason for that, right? And, and this is this is the same reason for many of the constitutional protections. It's it's why we it's why on, in terms of the Fifth Amendment we err and the Fourth Amendment uh, we err on the side of protecting broadly, and so that some people who we feel very confident are guilty uh, of criminal offenses nevertheless will go free right. because we want to overprotect so that we don't run the risk that we afford the state the opportunity to suppress people's rights because we are not sufficiently protective of the rights of the guilty. It's the same thing with speech. We overprotect speech, so it's why we protect the right of Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. Right. You know, we, we protect the rights of Nazis, but not because we love Nazis. We protect the rights of Nazis because protecting Nazis protects you and me also. Uh, you know, even though we're not Nazis, 
protecting them protects us and protects everybody. And that's the point. Um, and so those lines have to be rigorously protected and they have to be very, very far at one end in order to make sure that we are rigorously protected. And this is really the only place where, where the way that happens. As you know, free, you know, free, free speech is not protected the same way in other countries. No, and all um, we have to do is look to the north in Canada, for example. They have a human rights commission. They have a, a free, they have a speech commission, right? So we're to the point where stand-up comedians are literally have to come to the United States to avoid prosecution in Canada. Uh, yeah, uh, Mike Ward I mean, is one of those comedians. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, I'll never forget. Uh, you know, I mean, this is, uh, I'm going to say this because I think this is really important for people to understand. Most people do not understand this. Um, and it's a shame. But we talk about Western countries, we talk about our allies, we talk about Britain, France, Italy, Spain, mm -hmm. you name it, Japan, whatever, you name it, name a country that's really Western, great friends with us, our allies, you know, they'll go to war with us, and they'll None of them are remotely as protective of individual liberty as we are in the United States. People do not understand that. If you travel to other countries, you can't say it. Does, I don't care. Paris, London, whatever, <laughs> Athens, you know, yes. Rome. You can't yes. say the same things in those places that you can here. You'll get arrested. Sure. In Italy, it's a crime to criticize a prosecutor. Could you imagine being arrested <laughs> for criticizing a prosecutor in New York? Right. Uh, uh, you know, yes, you can get you can get arrested and prosecuted for criticizing a prosecutor. It's um, crazy. People don't understand that in, in the, the most Western of Western countries, um, they don't have remotely the kinds of protections of civil liberties that we do here. It is we are unique on this planet. Yes. Um, and we people are not uh, um, appreciative enough of what we've got here. Uh, and uh, people need to sort of, that's why it's so important to zealously protect what we have, because most people on earth don't have it, even in the most Western of Western countries. And that's I, an important uh, concept. Yeah. yeah, and most people don't understand that the overwhelming percentage of human history has not been in liberty. It's not getting worse for right. us, right? I mean, it, it, like the American experiment is really the first true experiment in liberty as opposed to uh, uh, suffering that we've had. Now, let me throw one direct question at you. If you don't want to answer it, don't, but I sure. hope you will, which <laughs> okay. is get in the context of how the media, certain media is framing it. In your opinion, did Donald Trump incite a crowd to riot on January 6th? Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't been watching the, I have not been watching the January 6th hearings because they're really just a show trial. It's, it's a one-sided hearing. And so mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think, I, I assume that's the context in which you're raising this. Um, it, it, you know, it's a one-sided hearing, one-sided hearings don't mean anything, you know, so I haven't watched any of it. So I don't know what evidence was, you know, purportedly, uh, presented. Um, I, I'll base this on just my observation at the time, right. listening to the speech and then re also reading the speech. Um, looking at the news reports of what people did and people didn't do, you know, and I actually had arguments with, I had arguments with a lot of my friends uh, and colleagues and people that I have great respect for, people, extremely intelligent people, very well-educated people, uh, libertarians, mostly libertarians, actually. Um, you know, I, I don't think he incited anything. Um, there's many things you can say about Donald Trump, and I know you frequently do. Um, there are many things you can say about Donald Trump, but I don't think one of them is that he incited, he incited an insurrection on January 6th. Um, and as I said, I've had this argument with a lot of people who I respect 
tremendously, who are probably smarter than me, um, and who are as, as, as good a libertarian as you can get uh, in terms of their, their, their pedigree to the extent that there's such a thing. Um, and you know we we disagree, uh, yeah. and I, I even um, I even had an argument. It's interesting. I even had an argument with a very good friend of mine, um, uh, using as an analogy, um, of Mark Antony's uh, Julius Caesar speech, um, and um, we sort of it's actually very interesting. We sort of argued over why Trump's speech was different than Mark Anthony's speech mm. um, and where the differences were. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how you can kind of analogize things to other things, but you know, this is what people do when they want to talk about important topics. I mean, you have to be able to delve into things in great detail, um, with great passion, uh, you know, with great specificity, and you have to be willing to wrestle with these hard issues. And uh, so I'll tell so my, now, I haven't looked at any evidence since then. Mm-hmm. Um, if there were a real hearing, as opposed to the, the, the hearing that we the hearings that we've been seeing, which really delved into the evidence in great detail, would I change my mind? I mean, perhaps. But to me, the greatest evidence is the speech uh, itself. Uh, you know, is the speech was the speech something that one might reasonably say um, uh, incited people in the way that you would make you would hold someone culpable? And I think I don't think so. Um, I, I, you know, he, the speech that he gave was no different than the speeches that politicians give all the time. Um, and that's one of the things I think people don't want to wrestle with is the fact that the kind of rhetoric, the kind of stuff, the kind of language is standard politician stuff. But people hate Donald Trump so much that they apply a double standard to him. Uh, you know, something which I found very interesting, um, you know, because I'm no fan of Donald Trump, but I do think he, he was treated very unfairly in the media. Um, of course, you know, every... Every politician is treated badly by the media because the media are just unreliable in terms of how they right. how they uh, um, present things. But Trump was a very unusual case. Um, I, I, I and, and you know my friends and, and friends on social media and friends in real life, everybody had you know an opinion one way or the other on Trump. Um, I know people who loved him, voted for him, wanted him to be reelected. I know people who hate, thought he was the devil. And these are all my, these are my friends. Right, right, right. On, uh, they're all my friends. So, you know, um, and um, so the, the, Trump uniquely triggered so much um, aggression and uh, forcefulness in people's viewpoints and approach that I decided to start. And then every, every other day, there was some outrageous story in the news about, yeah. about what he did or said. And so I started to look into them and I started to, to engage the, uh, the primary sources. You know, somebody said, oh, Donald Trump gave this speech in which he said X, Y, and Z, how outrageous. I would just go watch the speech. I wasn't going to, I wasn't interested in anybody's, you know, was a secondhand account of it. I was going to go watch the speech to see, oh, did he say that? And when I started, so I got to the point where I noticed that I was digging into these things and I noticed that the, the accounts were false. And so I thought, wow, let me, this is interesting that the frequency of discovering that these reports turned out not to be true was, was astonishingly high. So I decided, I, I decided that I was going to look at, from that point forward, at every single outrageous allegation, anything that either was in a meme or in a news report or in something that he did or said something just crazy or something that got your blood boiling, mm-hmm. I was going to go straight to the primary source to figure out whether it was true or not. And do you know what I found? I found that 100% of those stories turned out to be false. Okay. Every, when I, every time I heard or read about some crazy thing that Trump uh, allegedly did, 
None of them were true. Not one, not a single one of them was true. Now he's done plenty of things that we can complain about. Right. Um, you know, his, his, his policy, his economic policy was absurd right. and ridiculous and, har- and harmful, for example. Uh, but all the really crazy stuff that he was uh, accused of, none of it turned out to be true. And I, right. I, th- I was astonished at the at the at the at that hundred percent number. Oh, surely God. some of it has to be true. I mean, how could they be wrong? How could they get it all wrong? How could they get it wrong every single time? They got it right. wrong every single time. I was I, I couldn't believe it. It was well, the unbelievable. Media, yeah, the media going back to to Cronkite. People seem to think Cronkite was this pillar of integrity. He wasn't, and people think somehow that um, you know you know that the media just turned against Trump. It didn't, but. I found myself in the, op- and you know, I'm no Trump fan. And I found myself in the opposition on occasion of having to defend Trump against some of these more ridiculous memes, right? But we're, we're, to be honest, what I found most damning was the source, meaning usually his, before he got banned, which I thought was a ridiculous decision, um, his Twitter timeline, because those were his words. They weren't even, he couldn't even claim that a press secretary or a social media manager sent it out. He, he, he claimed ownership of his tweets. So to me, a lot of times, rather than, deal if i got upset by something or a policy of his it was very easy and this is to some extent why i love trump because you could go to his timeline and he's the first president in modern history or any history i think to actually provide almost like a stream of consciousness in written form uh, which was nonsense and and to me like a lot of times i know you came to me and said well john what justification do you have for having this opinion in Trump and then say, well, here's his tweet. And then you could go back two weeks and you could see blah, blah, blah. Whether you agreed with me or not, that would be my source. But I agree with you. A lot of these memes that you see are usually they're hundred percent wrong, not to mention the logical derivations thereof. Okay. So this was a great conversation to start off. Last question, because oh, I get, you mean there's more? Oh, there's <laughs> Sorry. tons, man. I figured, I figured if anybody could talk, Dan, it would be a lawyer uh, versed in constitutional issues. But uh, here's the thing. Um, I get this a lot from both my friends on the right and the left. Um, I say I'm not interested in democracy. I'm interested in liberty uh, because the old trope about democracy being tools and a lamb voting on who's to eat for dinner uh, is what democracy is. It might be the most benign form of dictatorship that we know of, but it's still not liberty. And I, when I say that, I usually get back, the well, libertarians are uncaring ghouls who only want to look out for number one or something to that effect. How do you respond to something like that? As a libertarian, as someone who I know is into the liberty movement, if not uh, political uh, uh, libertarianism, but philosophically, what's your response to that? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, giant, it's a giant straw man. I mean, that's the problem. Um, people always mischaracterize what libertarians intend, say, mean, and do. Um, you know, when libertarians, I mean, and it goes to, it, go, it goes to the, uh, the old problem. If you oppose a policy, you must hate the people that the people proposing the policy are trying to help. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, they don't allow for the fact that you also want to help those same people. You disagree with the way that they're doing it. Right. And so, I mean, you know, guns are the best example. Um, because the disconnect between policy proposals and motivations uh, or ascribed motivations is, is, is incredible, right? So um, anytime there's uh, some terrible public shooting, um, 
the people, you know, people who uh, people who want to uh, engage in more gun control, the first thing they do is they say, you know, well, maybe this will finally get you terrible people to agree to enact sensible gun regulations. Um, and if you oppose what they call sensible gun regulations, you favor dead school children. Exactly. Um, and and they're they're not open to the idea that like them, you also care about protecting school children. You're just disagreeing with the means to do it. Um, you know, people, you know, gun owners, uh, you know, sort of gun owners of goodwill and gun owners of good faith and, and law-abiding gun owners uh, understand that gun control laws don't make people safe. So if the goal is to make people safe, the question is what's the correct way of making people safe? Is it banning guns? Is it restricting guns or is it some other thing? But the moment you say, I oppose uh, banning semi-automatic AR-15s, you are in favor of dead school children. And, and they don't want to hear, they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to hear it. You're just a terrible, terrible person. And so that's a very specific example of what you just described is the sort of general libertarian problem, which is that people, you know, the, the, they set up the, this straw man where if you're a libertarian and you believe in individual liberty, you're some, some you know, uh, some uh, uh, lone uh, person who rejects society, who rejects, you know, working with people, who rejects cooperative uh, uh, efforts, uh, you're just all about yourself. And, you know, and the worst part is people don't want to hear, the, people don't want to hear the counter position. They don't want to hear you explain what you're all about. They just, they just believe the straw man, they assert the straw man, and that's the end of the discussion. There is no discussion. It's a big problem. Yeah, and we want to sell black tar heroin to nine-year-olds or something, right? Isn't right. that what libertarians do, Dan? Apparently. Right <laughs> here. That's why we're here, right? Um, okay, so now let's move on to what I know is your wheelhouse. Uh, there were three, I think, major SCOTUS decisions that came down in the last week. Um, first of all, let's talk about Bruin versus the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, which uh, is a Second Amendment uh, decision. Um, first of all, uh, before you go into it, uh, explain to us what it was. Uh, in terms most laymen can understand, and then what happened? Sure. And did you file a friend of the court brief in that case? I'll, I'll take those in reverse order. Yes, I did. Excellent. <laughs> um, I, I filed a, what's what's called an amicus curiae brief, and in Latin that means friend of the court brief. And mm -hmm. for your uh, for your viewers that are familiar with that term, um, in uh, in in many cases, particularly cases at Supreme Courts, not just the U.S. Supreme Court, but any Supreme Court, mm -hmm. but also in in other kinds of in intermediate appellate courts, you know, it doesn't have to be the highest court necessarily, but that's often where you see it. Because Supreme Courts, the highest court um, in a particular jurisdiction, because those rulings tend to have very far reaching implications, not just for the parties that are before the court, but for other people in similar situations, uh, other people who are not parties to the case want to weigh in um, for a variety of reasons. They may, and don't forget, the litigant, you know, courts generally deal with the litigants that are in front of them. You have a plaintiff, you have a defendant, they have a dispute, they argue, maybe they go to trial uh, because they have to establish facts. You know, was the right was light red, was the light green? You know, you have a jury. But, um, but, but typically courts deal with the litigants in front of them. Mm -hmm. But because, as I said, 
these uh, supreme courts or these appellate courts can create can establish legal rulings that implicate lots of people, not just the two or however many litigants are in front of them. Other people sometimes want to weigh in on these things. So the the uh, abortion case is a great example, right? Dobbs versus uh, reproductive reproductive health. Um, if if um, if you know the court's ruling in on Roe versus Wade, it would you know affected every, the entire country potentially, or at least the states where um, abortion was going to be uh, was going to be made unlawful. And so, lots of people besides Mississippi, uh, whose law it was, and the, you know, and the plaintiff who was challenging the law, wanted to weigh in on it. And so, there is a process by which you can submit a written argument called a brief to these courts, and it's called an amicus curiae brief or a friend of the court brief. Basically, you are providing information that the parties themselves either uh, aren't providing or can't provide because, you know, you have limitations on how much information you right. can produce. There are page limitations on briefing. There's limitations on what you can put into the record. And so uh, there may be 15 or 20 different things that ought to be said or ought to be considered in connection with a very important case, but the parties can't say them all. And so, you know, uh, Planned Parenthood uh, presumably uh, submitted an amicus curiae brief. Um, you know, various other states submitted amicus curiae briefs. Lots of people wanted to weigh in on the issue and present various aspects of uh, things that the court should consider. Um, generally, you're not you're, the purpose of an amicus curiae brief is not to just repeat what the parties are saying. That's that's not that's pointless. You want to be saying something that's different, something that's an additional, something the court may not have thought of or the, or may not have had an opportunity to look at, and and add something to the argument. So. Yes, in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, um, I uh, submitted an amicus curiae brief on behalf of the Association of New Jersey Rifle and Pistol Clubs. And what we did uh, was we provided the New Jersey perspective. Um, this case was nominally about New York, although the implications of the ruling turned out to have very, very broad implications for a number of states uh, uh, that have similar laws. But because it was about New York, we thought it was helpful to point out to the court how things work in New Jersey, because New Jersey has a very similar law. And we thought the New Jersey experience could be instructive on why it was important to rule a certain way. Um, and so we pointed out two things. We pointed out um, how egregious New Jersey treats the subject matter. But we, that was point one of the brief. And then in the, in the second half of the brief, we pointed out how badly the courts that govern New Jersey, um, particularly the federal courts of the, in the District of New Jersey and in the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, deal with issues that are these constitutional issues that arise um, uh, uh, out of New, New Jersey. And so it was sort of a two-pronged uh, approach to showing the court sort of our New Jersey experience and how it reflects on the issues that the court had to deal with. Um, so, uh, so let's go. Let's go to the actual case. So, again, the case is called uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, and it was a challenge to um, New York's very restrictive standard for issuing a permits to carry a handgun in public. Now, forty-three states have objective laws for issuing. Uh, carry handgun carry permits. They're, they're usually referred to as shall issue laws. And it's called shall issue because there are a laundry list of objective criteria, typically not a felon, 
not guilty of domestic violence, uh, not suffering from uh, mental health issues that would make it dangerous for you to possess firearm, things like that. You know, sort very of black and white of, is what you're saying. Right. Very black things and white. That are, and things that are, th right, things that don't allow discretion. Things right. where you can say, okay, right, not a felon, not this, not that. And you can check the boxes, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, 43 states have laws like that. The remainder of the states have very discretionary laws. And in, in those states, and New York, of course, uh, is one of them. New Jersey is one. California, Maryland, Hawaii, Massachusetts, um, uh, and leaving uh, one at Rhode Island. Uh, in these states, um, the the uh, in addition to those similar objective criteria, these states also imposed a requirement that an applicant had to show some sort of special need. You had to justify to uh, one public official or another that you had a good reason to carry a gun. Um, and if they didn't agree with your reason, if you didn't satisfy their reason, they would deny your permit. In New Jersey, it was called justifiable need. In New York, it was called proper cause. Um, you know, uh, and so, and they each have a, a, different, right. a different name, but the, the essential idea is you have to justify your right to keep mirror arms um, in public. And invariably, um, for most, for the vast majority of people, um, the permit would be denied under that standard. And the reason is because you typically had to show uh, a very egregious set of circumstances that you were previously attacked, um, that you've been threatened. And, you know, as, um, uh, as uh, Scott Bach, who's the executive director of the Association of New Jersey Rifle and Pistol Clubs, likes to say, um, you qualify for a permit in New Jersey once you're dead. Mm. You know, they've shot you to death. Now you qualify for a permit. And, <laughs> right. and, 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 you know, it is, it's almost that bad, or was, I should say, was almost that bad because um, it's not sufficient to show that you live in a dangerous neighborhood. It's not sufficient to show that you carry large amounts of cash, or it's not, not in New Jersey. New York, that was sufficient, but not New Jersey. But it was so difficult to satisfy those criteria, the, 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 the right to, to, to carry a handgun in public for self-defense was essentially and effectively um, denied. Right. And so that's what this was. This, this was a challenge to New York's uh, proper cause requirement. And the court in a 6-3 decision uh, struck the proper cause requirement as unconstitutional um, and held that um, that a person cannot be required to show a need to sort of show a justification for why they wish to exercise their right to uh, keeping their arms in public. That is, the right to, the right to exercise the right to bear arms in public is a fundamental constitutional right protected by the Second Amendment, right. um, and um, and making someone justify it is not uh, not constitutionally permissible. Now, I thought to me as a layman, not as a legal a lawyer such as yourself. I thought the most one of the ancillary th things that came out of Judge Thomas, Justice Thomas's uh, um, decision, that there's no real such thing as secondary rights. You know that when he said we know of no other right where you have to show justification for its use, I don't have to prove to you that I have that I need to speak the way I choose to speak. I don't have to prove that. Um, that I don't need to incriminate myself by keeping my mouth shut and refusing to ask, to answer questions, right? Um, but for some reason, the Second Amendment was prior thought to be, well, you need to show, spe like you said, proper cause. Um, 
did you find that uh, to be something that was equally important aside from the very specific uh, and direct effect, which was the elimination of the subjective uh, requirements for concealed carry in New York, and I would assume the, the remaining seven states eventually uh, that had those types of requirements? Uh, yeah, yes. And in fact, that actually goes back, that's not new in the Bruin decision. That actually goes back to the uh, Heller case, the uh, mm. District of Columbia versus Heller from 2008, in which uh, the court ruled that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to keep and bear arms. That was the, that was the first case that sort of established uh, how the Second Amendment works. Um, and the fact that it, it, there is an individual right to keep and bear arms that is guaranteed by the Second Amendment. This idea that number one, um, the Second Amendment is not a lesser or secondary right. Number two, um, the amendment itself reflects whatever balancing the people thought was appropriate of the right to keep and bear arms versus um, the consequences of, of, of the ownership of arms or the possession or use of arms. Right. Um, one of the things that Justice Breyer um, uh, offered in a dissenting opinion in Heller was this idea that that the Second Amendment should encompass a, an interest balancing test where judges can say, well, um, this law does the following. And we have to weigh that against the, uh, the importance of the right to keep their arm. And what the court said in Heller is, no, we don't, we're not going to, we're not going to let courts just balance the right away. The balancing was already done in uh, enacting and in, 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 in ratifying the Second Amendment, the people automatically already made that decision as to how important the right was. It, you don't get to sort of ex post say, okay, now let's again decide how important the right was by seeing, you know, by, by comparing the, the um, law to the importance of the right to keep bare arms. Now, what's interesting is that, so, so that was in 2008, District of Columbia versus Heller. Mm -hmm. the, there was then two years later, McDonald versus Chicago, um, which uh, basically brought the right to keep bare arms to the states, it, it made um, it, the court ruled that the that the Second Amendment applied to state and local law. Since uh, McDonald versus Chicago, uh, the lower courts have engaged in a systematic uh, circumvention of that very concept. Because what the lower courts were doing is they were imposing exactly that interest balancing test that was rejected. So Breyer's interest balancing test. Snuck in through what uh, what is uh, typically referred to as intermediate scrutiny. Mm. Um, there is a there is a, a method of constitutional analysis uh, that is only applicable in certain very narrow contexts. It's, it's applicable in the First Amendment, um, certain First Amendment uh, types of issues. It's applicable in certain equal protection issues, but it's not a broad concept of constitutional analysis. And what what you do is in the appropriate context, what you do is you you take the law and you have to uh, you have to measure it against the standard. And so, typically, um, laws that so, for example, in the first amendment, in free, the, con uh, the context of free speech, uh, if a law um, uh, implicates content basis, it, 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 it restricts speech on, on the basis of its content, that triggers what is referred to as strict scrutiny. And then it's the burden of the state to uh, show that it's narrowly tailored to, um, uh, to achieve a compelling governmental, governmental interest. And so you have this 
in a sense, there's balancing going on. But in the case of strict scrutiny, it is a, it's a very narrow pigeonhole that you have to get into in order for the law to survive. And most laws don't survive. So, for example, let me uh, just interrupt you because I need a concrete example. I'm not as up there as you are. So, for example, um, a CIA agent cannot claim free speech if he, if he wanted to reveal um, asset locations, for example. Right? That would not be a claim of free speech, would it? Right, but there's a number of issues, actually several legal issues there involved, for example. Um, but the uh, example of, let's say, signage, right? A, a, a municipality may have uh, um, sign regulations, right? Okay. Uh, there's a recent case, not that recent, Reed versus Town of Gilbert, uh, which um, in which the, a town had uh, restrictions on certain kinds of signs. Um, the question was, well, um, uh, was the was the was the uh, restriction content based or not content based? And the court ruled that it was content based because you had to look at the sign and see what it said in order to figure out whether it fell within the ordinance or not. And once once that once you determine that the 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 uh, defendant the the government agency is regulating content then suddenly it's incredibly difficult to justify the law. You have to show a compelling governmental interest and you have to show that the law is narrowly tailored. And no, these laws are never narrowly tailored. Uh, they're always overbroad. They're, they're always uh, regulating more speech than is appropriate and so or necessary. And so these laws rarely meet that standard. Well, as it turns out, there's another level called intermediate scrutiny that is applicable only in very narrow circumstances. So for example, intermediate scrutiny in the context of free speech would apply um, not for content-based restrictions, but for time, place, and manner restrictions. Mm. Uh, you know, where you engage in speech, how you engage in speech, you know, uh, um, when you're engaging in speech. So if there's a difference, for example, between marching at two o'clock in the morning in front of, uh, you know, someone's house versus marching at uh, noon in front of someone's house, mm. you know, something like that. So, um, so this intermediate scrutiny has a much lesser has much less teeth in it. And what was happening was, and, and so therefore laws are much more easily supported uh, or, uh, or under what's called intermediate scrutiny. What was happening was when it came to gun laws, um, the courts were almost in, in almost every instance applying intermediate scrutiny. And not surprisingly, the laws would always survive. And what they were really doing was this exact kind of interest balancing thing that the court said was not allowed. And so for 12 years, the federal courts were constantly applying intermediate scrutiny and they were upholding just about everything, not every law, but just about every law. And one of the things that the court did in the Bruin case was they shut that down. They said, none of this, none of this um, means and scrutiny stuff. It doesn't apply to the second amendment. Um, you know, a lot of people have a misunderstanding. They think this scrutiny thing is sort of a broad-based constitutional concept. It's not. It, it applies only in certain very specific contexts. There's no reason why it should apply in the Second Amendment, and it doesn't. We now know after Bruin, it does not apply to the Second Amendment. This, the, in Bruin, the court made it very clear that if you want to analyze a, 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 a law that implicates the right to keep bare arms, once the conduct that's being restricted falls within the text of the Second Amendment, it, the bird, there's, there's one step. The, 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 uh, the, the uh, state must justify the law by, uh, by reference to, by connecting it to uh, some sort of historic tradition of the regulation of the right to keep bare arms, which means they either have to show a direct, um, uh, a direct 
uh, example of the same kind of regulation from the time that the, that the Second Amendment was adopted, or uh, they, have to, they have to show it by analogy. Mm -hmm. So for the same reason that uh, the First Amendment applies to modern technology, the Second Amendment applies to modern technology. Similarly, modern regulations that would not have existed back then can nevertheless have analogs from back then. And so that's what the state has to do. The state has to either show that the regulation at issue was um, in, in existence at the time or an analogous type of regulation or restriction was in existence at the time. And the reason for that is because of the concept of originalism. Um, the leading, leading method of constitutional interpretation on the court today and in really um, um, in uh, scholarship today is the concept right. of originalism. And uh, what, originalism, what originalism tells us is that if we want to interpret a constitutional provision, we have to look to what the original public meaning of the, of the provision was at the time that it was adopted. So if you wanna know what the second amendment means, if you know, wanna know what the right to keep and bear arms is, you have to determine what did people in, in, in the 18th century understand the right to keep and bear arms was because the constitution was written for the people to read and understand. So if they wrote about the right to keep and bear arms, people understood what that meant in 1791. And so it's the job of the court to understand what did people in 1791 understand the right to keep and bear, was, keep and bear arms was at the time. That tells you what the original public meaning was and that tells you what the provision means then you have to apply it to the facts in front of you. And that often means applying it to modern facts. So it doesn't mean you just give it this sort of naked application right. like 1791. You have to take the 1791 understanding of the meaning of the right and apply it to modern facts. And that's not always very easy. But it doesn't mean you get to just make it up, you know, using modern sensibilities and modern values. You, you take the original meaning and you apply it to the modern facts. And that's, um, that's uh, originalism as, it, as it's done today. And, and, and honestly, I love that explanation because it's what allows a very easy shutdown of these ridiculous anti-2A memes that, well, if we go back to muskets, I guess I'm okay with the 2A or um, yeah, no, it was only meant for the army, for the militia to have arms. And one of my things, again, as a street corner lawyer, Dan is, um, are you trying to tell me that the people in 1791 created these 10 amendments and your claim is nine of them were about restricting government, but possibly the most important one, the second amendment, they reserved to the state only. It, it flies in the face to your point of that originalist meaning that here, here you have 10 amendments all written. I think other than the second, we can all agree. They're all meant to limit government overreach into the sovereignty of the individual. But the claim among some is no, but the Second Amendment literally is only to be kept in a, a, a state sanctioned and run army or militia, right? Yeah, it, it doesn't really make sense. And actually, the uh, the, the uh, court, um, the majority opinion in Heller deals with that pretty easily, mm -hmm. which is and, and written by Justice Scalia. One of the very first things that the court does in the opinion in Heller is it 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 it, 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 uh, it talks about the word people. And it's a very basic legal principle in terms of uh, interpreting a document that a word used in one part of a document is in, generally supposed to have the same meaning 
when it's used in another part of the document. And so what the court did was it simply went through the use of the word people in the First Amendment, the right of the people to peaceably assemble. Um, the Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. Um, and the Tenth Amendment, um, you know, uh, rights reserved to the people, respectively. So, so the court said, look, we know that the right to peace, peace the right of the people to peaceably assemble is talking about individuals. Uh, it's not the states uh, or right. state organizations don't assemble, individuals assemble. Um, we know that the Fourth Amendment, when it talks about the right of the people to be secure in their persons, house, and papers and effects, we're talking about individual people in their houses. Um, that's clearly an individual right. And so um, if you want to understand what the word people means in the Second Amendment, it's supposed to mean the same thing. They don't use words differently in the same document. So, that, so plainly, people is talking about you and me, not some collective. It's individual people. Um, uh, the right, to, you know, individual people have the right, right. to keep and bear arms, and so, so that that fallacy was dealt with fairly in a fairly straightforward manner. So then the question, of course, becomes because the way the court did it in Heller. I know we're talking about supposed to be talking yeah. about Bruin, but Heller is actually very cri critically important to understand if you want to understand how the Second Amendment works. You got to look at all these critical right. cases because Heller lays the foundation of what the right actually is. Although Bruin gives us a magnificent roadmap for how to figure out whether a law satisfies the requirements of the Second mm -hmm. Amendment, Heller kind of gives us sort of the nuts and bolts of what it's all about. Right. Um, and so one of the important things that the court explained in, in Heller was that the Second Amendment, uh, like the First Amendment, protects a pre-existing right. A, the Second Amendment doesn't say there shall be a right to keep and bear arms. It says the right, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, right. meaning a right that people already have. Uh, it predates the Constitution. So the question becomes, what is that right? What is the right of the people to keep and bear arms? And that's where you, again, get to the importance of originalism, because you have to look at the history. You have to look at if you if you were living in 1791, what would you believe the right to keep and bear arms is. And in order to do that, you look at the historical context, you look at the resources that were available at the time, you, you would look at what commentators right. were talking about at the time. They looked, for example, to you know, legal writers like Blackstone. They looked to the kinds of public commentary, public speeches, public writings. What would people living at the time have understood their right to keep and bear arms right. was? That's the, and that's the key to the Heller decision. The Heller decision goes through that whole concept of what is this thing? Right. No, that's excellent. I love the way you explain that. Um, okay. Uh, that's a 2A talk on Bruin. Uh, let's move on now in the interest of time to Dobbs versus Jackson's uh, Women's Health Organization. And that was the case that uh, the court used to overturn Roe versus Wade. So right. some historical context. Um, Roe versus Wade was in, uh, established in 1973 originally, I believe. Um, and this was at the time an activist court. Uh, I, I don't think I'm out of uh, line in saying that. And I've heard it said that in Roe versus Wade, the court, uh, I believe Harry Blackman specifically, uh, manufactured a right to achieve the end of abortion access for women. Is that something you agree with? Is that, do you feel an accurate statement? And then how do we evolve from Roe versus Wade to where we ended up uh, this past week with Dobbs? You know, one of the big criticisms of Roe over the years has been the reasoning and the manner in which it, it arrived at its conclusion. 
Um, Which, by the way, I'm know, sorry, RBG herself said Roe was not the proper case to establish these rights, correct? Yeah, and one, one of the things she also said was that it, Roe came at a time when there was actually a trend. It was a movement, social movement, a political movement addressing uh, aspects of abortion. Right. Um, and I think a lot of people, I think uh, uh, Ginsburg at the time, but a lot of people believe that Roe did damage to that, that actually hurt the, the politics, the social aspects of, of the of the, the really learning and the, evol uh, the evolving right. um, uh, nature of the abortion debate. Um, uh, it, it's not something that I've involved myself with very extensively, uh, not, a, not a student of the history of abortion or Roe, but uh, it, it's very interesting. It, it's one of the issues that has come up in the context of uh, Dobbs, which is the idea that um, whatever you think about abortion, uh, whatever side of the controversy you're on, um, there is, a, a, you know, a, a lot of people have said that it did real damage to the conversation. Um, and, you know, we've seen an enormous polarization since then right. of uh, viewpoints. Um, uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that the, that the court says in Dobbs is that um, Roe didn't help, it hurt, it, it made things worse. Uh, and I don't know whether, whether that's, you know, it's counterfactual. So we don't know what the, what the country would have looked like if Roe hadn't been decided the way it was decided. But we have seen enormous division and controversy since 1973 on this issue. And so um, it's hard to look at history and say, you know, it helped in terms of the controversy. Um, I'm not talking about the merits of, right. uh, of abortion or the abortion debate, but I'm talking about the polarization and the contention. Uh, of of the different of the two different sides, um, so uh, and, and and you know people may not be aware of this, but the substance the follow up case uh, Casey versus uh, Planned Parenthood uh, didn't um, didn't really endorse the original the, re the reasoning of, of Roe. Um, it in a sense abandoned important aspects of Roe, abandoned the trimester concept. Right. Um, but you know Casey was largely largely upheld. Um, the, the constitutional right to abortion on the grounds of stare decisis. Stare decisis is the uh, legal principle that um, when you have a precedent that is something previously decided by the court, uh, you don't easily overrule it. There is a, a series of steps and a series, uh, there's an analysis that you have to undertake if you're going to overrule a prior precedent. You have to satisfy certain criteria. That's like satisfy a those criteria? Yeah, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I have to throw in a silly uh, comment here. That's the equivalent of saying uh, you can't decision a champ's belt away from him. You have to essentially knock out the champion to get the belt. So in this case, you really have to knock out the precedent. It's not going to be like an even draw where you win, right? You have to knock out the principles that establish that precedent, correct? You're right. It's not just simple as saying, you know what? Well, we disagree with that. So right, exactly. <laughs> That's not how it works, right? And, right. and, so, um, and, and so Casey is essentially stare decisis for the right of abortion. Casey went, you know, basically said, uh, they went through the stare decisis factors and said, we think that that uh, this uh, this precedent should remain, although it changed the rules. Hmm. Uh, it, it adopted an undue burden test as opposed to this, the straight trimester test. So it did change the law, but it, it, it upheld the constitutional right to abortion that, uh, that Roe um, found in the 14th Amendment. So that brings us to Dobbs. Um, and so, 
Um, of course, we know that the that the uh, the first draft of the majority opinion was leaked a couple months ago and it created Horrible. a firestorm of controversy. Yeah. Uh, it's a horrific, a horrific event I agree. for the Supreme Court that should never happen. Um, I don't care what, who you are, or what side of whatever issue you're on, that should never happen. Um, it, and it probably did some real damage to the court, including in its internal workings. You know, they, the, the, the confidentiality um, is important for the ability of the justices to trust each other and to, the right. ability to, to deliberate on these things. You know, this is all very, this, you know, so much of this is very weighty and important stuff and they need to be able to talk to each other and they need to be able to circulate opinions. Right. You know, that opinion, that draft opinion from February was circulated, was circulated among the justices. They read it, they comment on it, they agree with it, they disagree with it, they write a dissent, they write a concurrence. All this is, you know, all this happens inside that building. Right. And for that to be revealed to the public is, is a real problem. Um, and I, I do hope they find who leaked it. Uh, because I think that person should be very severely punished. I mean, it should be, it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. But in any event, so what, uh, what uh, the majority opinion does is it, it, it applies, it goes through, it basically takes Roe to task for the quality of its analysis. Um, the the Roe uh, is, is among a number of opinions that, that deal with the concept of substantive due process. Um, Roe was uh, was founded on the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, and there's a series of cases um, um, that that indicate that the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment um, supports the assertion of substantive constitutional rights. So, so the, the the principle says it's not due process of law is not simply process. Um, you know, having a hearing, being able right. to confront witnesses, uh, being able to present evidence, uh, being giving note, being given notice of a hearing. You know, that's process. But what substantive due process says is that the due process clause is not just about process, but it's about substantive law. And a number of a number of decisions have been based on substantive due process. And in the Dobbs decision and in the dissent. Um, there's a discussion of these other cases, one of which is Griswold versus Connecticut. That was the contraception case. Eisenhower versus Baird, another contra contraceptive, uh, contraception case. Um, Lawrence versus Texas, uh, which is uh, which uh, um, prohibited uh, a ban on uh, on uh, gay sex. Um, the, the, it overturned uh, Bowers versus Hardwick, uh, which which upheld the criminalization of uh, of gay sex. Um, the uh, Obergefell, which is the uh, same-sex marriage case. So to the extent that these cases are founded on this concept of substantive due process, there was a lot of, dis the, the case of the, the, the Dobbs dealt with, you know, the, the how you figure out what sorts of rights fall within substantive due process. And um, an interesting aspect of this case is Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, Thomas has for many years taken the position, and it comes up every, every time substantive due process is implicated in the case, he always writes on this topic. His view is that there's no such thing as substantive due process. Thomas says that uh, a provision that talks about process is about process. It, it makes no sense to take a provision of law that refers to process and suggest that it deals with substantive law. And so Thomas says that. Um, the, no, he agrees with the majority's analysis, but he also says that the, the simpler reason for uh, overturning Roe is that there's no such thing as substantive due process. Um, and so 
you know, he 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 had now no, no one else that has adopted his view at this point on the fact that there's no such thing as substantive due process. Um, so, you know, Thomas is not shy about taking uh, positions that nobody else agrees with him on. He also thinks that um, that it's a concept called incorporation, um, which uh, which is um, going off on a tangent here, but originally the Bill of Rights was only intended to be applicable as against the federal government. Mm. It, it had nothing to do with states and state right. law. The Bill of Rights, First Amendment, Second Amendment, all were, were intended to be checks on the federal government. Well, it turns out that the 14th Amendment changed that. The reason why the First Amendment prevents the state of New Jersey from censoring you is not because of the uh, f- original First Amendment, but it's because the 14th Amendment brought the right of free speech into the 14th Amendment and made it applicable against the states. So um, most, uh, this, this is the due process clause again, most, uh, the court has held that the reason the 14th Amendment does that is through the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Thomas is the only one in the court who says that's complete nonsense. Thomas says the reason that the First Amendment, for example, is enforceable against the state of New Jersey is because of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And so um, Thomas regularly brings this stuff up. He's the only justice who believes this, uh, but he, he's no stranger to being the only guy who thinks that there's a principle of law uh, the way it is. So similarly, he, he, he in, in his concurrence in Dobbs, he said, look, there's no such thing as substantive process. And he says that every time. He said it in Obergefell, he said it in in Lawrence, he says it's in all the cases, there's no such thing as substantive process. Um, but, but going back to the majority opinion. We'll be right back. So what Alito says in the majority opinion is uh, he goes through what the what substantive due process requires. Right. And generally in the substantive due process cases, what, uh, what the requirement is, is to, to determine whether there's a right an unenumerated right that is brought into the Constitution through the 14th Amendment due process clause. Um, it is. Uh, it has to be. Um, it has to either be implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, uh, or it, it has to have that level of historic significance with respect to um, to the the history of uh, of the United States. And so it is again. It's a, it's an historical analysis. The idea is to compare the history and tradition of the United States to determine whether this claimed right has a connection to the history and and tradition of the country. And what he does is he goes through the history and tradition regarding abortion. He shows, uh, or at least he argues, that uh, there is really no good way to connect a right to abortion uh, to the history of how abortion was treated historically. Um, For example, so in if you look to uh, the 18th century, because um, there's a couple of places you can look, right? You can look to the 18th century, you can look to the 19th century. Um, in the case of the 14th Amendment, you're more likely to look to the 19th century when the 14th Amendment was uh, ratified. Uh, but for certain kinds of things, you might look to, you know, 1791, like we are talking about with the Second Amendment, right. uh, looking to 1791 turned out to be a very important uh, aspect of originalism. So he points out historically how, um, in the 18th century, uh, at common law, um, abortion was a crime from the point of what was referred to as quickening. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is, and quickening was sort of a shorthand for um, knowing that the baby is alive. And because Basically the when the baby started kicking, right? Basically. Right. That was referred to as quickening. 
Right. And so what that meant was, and, and it was sort of, I guess the thought was that it was a, a shorthand way of figuring out, well, is the fetus even alive? Right. Well, it's moving now, we know it's alive. So that's right. quickening. Okay. So in the 18th century, that was somewhat of a dividing line between where, where uh, uh, abortion was a criminal act versus not. But what he points out is that if you start looking to what he says is the more relevant time frame, which is the mid 19th century, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, by that time, the quickening distinction was eliminated and abortion was broadly illegal at all times. Hmm. And so his, his point is that if you look, if you're going to look as an original matter to the history and tradition of how abortion was treated, uh, because that's what you have to do if you're going to claim that something falls within substantive due process, um, you see, not only do you not see uh, a broad su historical support for a right to abortion, but in fact, you see an almost universal criminal criminalization of abortion. And so he says, look, you can't really, you can't consider that um, a, a, a right, uh, an unenumerated un un substantive due process right, if, if you can't show a history supporting it. And so that's how he draws the conclusion uh, that there is no right to abortion. Now, I will tell you, um, to me, it's uh, this, I think they missed a, a very, valuable opportunity here, because one of the things that I would love to have seen, which, I did not, which we didn't see, is a, a real discussion of the Ninth Amendment. Um, you know, it, it, substantive due process, whether you like it or not, whether you're Clarence Thomas or not, whether you think that the, the due process clause does what the court says it does or not, um, there is no serious uh, treatment of the Ninth Amendment uh, the court has never given the Ninth Amendment any serious treatment. The closest that we saw was a concurring opinion by Justice Goldberg in Griswold versus Connecticut, which I said is, is the uh, contraception. Case. I'm sorry. And what's the Ninth Amendment again? So, oh, okay. I'm sorry. I should, I should have introduced that first. So the Ninth Amendment is the, the provision in the Bill of Rights that says the enumeration of certain rights in the Constitution shall not be used to disparage or deny others. Meaning, I, I didn't quote it exactly, but that's the yeah. concept. The point, the point of the Ninth Amendment is to say, just because we didn't write it down in this document doesn't mean we don't have the right. So, so people are very, uh, people uh, like to say, oh, you say there's such and such a right? Show me where it is in the Constitution. Well, that's not how it works. We have, and this, this goes to a very, very heated debate over the Bill of Rights. So you had the you had people who said well we have to have a bill of rights in the constitution otherwise people down years from now are going to assume the that the uh, the, the federal government can infringe on those rights right. okay other people said no no you can't have a bill of rights because if you have a bill of rights people are going to assume that the only rights we have are the ones that we wrote down so if you list 10 rights or 20 rights or 30 rights that's all we're going to have. Right. And that down the road, courts are going to say, well, if it's not on that list, you don't have it. And so the compromise was the Ninth Amendment. Madison actually wrote the Ninth Amendment, came up with this. Madison right. said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to list a bunch of rights, okay? Free speech, freedom of religion, establishment, you know, right to keep your arms, all that good stuff. And we're also going to say, and the enumeration of rights herein should not be used to disparage or deny other rights retained by the people. So this is not an exclusive list. We wrote these down, but we have lots of others also that we didn't that we didn't write down. And the idea was people have you know people have lots and lots and lots of rights. 
Um, and so you can't write them all down, but we want to make sure some of them are in there at least. So there's no, so there's no uh, ambiguity about some of these, things. the major ones. So that's the, well, that's, that's a good question. Mm. Are these the major ones? In other words, because they wrote down five rights in the first amendment, a right in the second amendment, a right in the fourth amendment, well, there's a right in the third amendment too, but nobody really cares about that. It's a quartering of soldiers. Right. Um, several rights in the fifth amendment, several rights in the sixth amendment. Does that mean that those are more important than other rights that weren't on the list? That's another question, right? So, so the first question is, if it's not on the list, does that mean we don't have it? Well, the ninth amendment tells us, no, that's not how it works. But the question you raised is actually really important. So suppose we, suppose the court embraced the ninth amendment and said, okay, um, uh, we know that there are unenumerated rights. We just have to figure out what they are, which is kind of substantive due process if you think about it, right? It's, 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 it's kind of how, it's kind of what they've done with the substantive due process. But okay, so you say, okay, we know that there are rights that are not enumerated in the constitution. We just have to figure out what they are. Are they somehow less than or less important than the enumerated ones? So did they decide we're going to pick the, the, the most important ones, we're going to put them on paper, and then there's a bunch of lesser ones, and we're not going to put them on paper. I'm not sure that that's the right way to look at it. Um, but certainly, if the court were to embrace the Ninth Amendment and, and analyze the Ninth Amendment, that's one of the questions they'd have to ask. We have an unenumerated right. The Ninth, the Ninth Amendment tells us that we have such a right. Once we figure out what it is, do we treat it differently than the freedom of speech? The right to keep and bear arms, the 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 right to be uh, you know uh, secure in the, your person's houses, so, so, and effects. So when you're saying they didn't uh, seize the opportunity to expand on the Ninth Amendment, what you're saying is you still have the question open: Is abortion an unenumerated right? Is that is that what you're uh, sort of pointing out here? Well, I'm saying two things. I'm saying that you know. So let me go back to Griswold versus Connecticut. So the reason I bring up Justice Goldberg's concurring opinion in Griswold versus Connecticut is because Griswold is an example of a substantive due process case where the court said that you have a right to contraception because of the 14th Amendment due process clause. But Justice Goldberg's concurring opinion says, well, I agree that you have a right uh, that the state can't prohibit you from, uh, from using contra contraception, but it's not the 14th Amendment, it's the Ninth Amendment. He, he said that it's one of the unenumerated rights in the, that, that is protected by the Ninth Amendment. But the court didn't accept that. And no, no Supreme Court case has ever embraced that way of thinking about it, even though they really should. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, presumably, Justice Thomas finds uh, substantive due process so unacceptable, because it is hard to imagine that a provision that talks about process, in fact, actually um, uh, uh, provides substantive rights and substantive protections. It doesn't really kind of doesn't make sense. Now, Justice Thomas, you know, says in, in his concurrence in the Dobbs case, he says, you know, um, we should we should uh, reconsider these substantive due process cases. And he names Griswold and Eisenstadt mm -hmm. and uh, Lawrence and Obergefell. Um, and he says, you know, maybe the, maybe there, maybe the, the, the right, these rights uh, are, can be found through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. But I would love someone to have said, maybe Thomas or maybe someone else, or maybe these are the unenumerated rights that are discussed that are referenced in the Ninth Amendment. The mm -hmm. Ninth Amendment 
is explicit. The Ninth Amendment says there are other rights. Just because they're not written here doesn't mean we don't have them. There are other rights that we haven't put on this list. This, would have, this case would have been a great opportunity to talk about the Ninth Amendment, to give it life, and to at least start the conversation about what the Ninth Amendment actually means and how it works. And that's why I say it was a missed opportunity. Nobody, other than one line, the very beginning of the opinion where Justice Alito talks about the history of abortion and how in the past there have been a variety of arguments for where, where the right of abortion can be found. And in one line, he talks about the Ninth Amendment, you know, he references the fact that it's been discussed. After that, there's no discussion by anybody of the Ninth Amendment. And I think this is this is really a situation that would have been perfect to have that conversation, hmm. either in a concurring opinion, or at least for someone to say, hey, we ought to be talking about unenumerated rights that's referenced in the Ninth Amendment. It's fine to talk about it. And look, no one, you know, there, there's, um, there are there is there there is Ninth Amendment scholarship out there. Uh, one of the one of the leading scholars on the Ninth Amendment is Professor Randy Barnett at Georgetown uh, uh, Georgetown Law School. Um, he has a very uh, very uh, detailed theory about how the Ninth Amendment works and what it means, um, but it's not taken seriously by the court, and it really should be. Um, it's there for reason. And he, uh, uh, Robert Bork, in his uh, failed confirmation here, is famously was asked about the Ninth Amendment, and he basically said, well, you know, it's just, it, we don't, we, we have no way of figuring out what it means. It's like an inkblot. If I, if I, if I was asked to, to interpret a document and, and one of the sentences had a big inkblot on it, what am I supposed to do with that? It's, I can't see what's underneath. And that's the way he talked about the Ninth Amendment, which is, you know, a shame because we don't do that. You don't do that with with the Constitution. You don't do that with a statute. You don't do that with a, a contract. If there's language there, your job job is a, of a judge is to figure out what it means and, and right. give it meaning. You don't just ignore uh, provisions of a written document, especially the Constitution. The Ninth Amendment clearly has meaning. It clearly means something. Um, and the fact that uh, uh, Judge Bork was not willing to dig into it and figure it out is disgraceful. Mm. Um, it's not an ink blot. It's it's a provision of the Constitution, and the court has an obligation, and judges have an obligation to figure out what it means and and apply it in the way it was supposed. It's intended to be applied. This area of substantive due process, this area of these rights that cannot be directly found in the Constitution, but people feel have some basis in uh, in the basic rights of, of uh, free people. That's exactly what the Ninth Amendment is about. And, and this conversation should be had in, in, in this kind of context. Look, they should have been talking about it in Obergefell. They should have been talking about it in Lawrence versus Texas. They should have been talking about it in all those cases. We haven't heard about the Ninth Amendment since Justice Goldberg in, in Griswold versus right. Connecticut. That's a disgrace, yeah. you know? And, and I, look, I don't know, I don't know what Justice Thomas's view of that is and, and, and why he hasn't embraced that approach, right. but it's the Ninth Amendment is a natural way for someone who thinks substantive due process is nonsense, like Justice Thomas does, the Ninth Amendment is a natural way to embrace that objection, you know, because, more so probably than the Privileges or Immunities Clause, because the Ninth Amendment is specifically about rights, and it's specifically in the Bill of Rights, and it's specifically juxtaposed to the enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights. So it's, it's perfectly situated for this discussion. Yeah, and it's interesting that, like as you said, once you lay it out like that, it's it's interesting that it hasn't been 
uh, talked about more and embraced. Um, okay, so we talked about Bruin, we talked about Dobbs. Uh, I, is it fair to say that you substantively agreed with the rulings? Well, I, I very much agree with Bruin. Um, you know, as you know, Second Amendment is uh, is a very substantial portion of my practice. It's, right. it's why I do a ton of Second Amendment law. Have been for uh, you know for many years. I mean, I was, I was, you know, I was involved in the Second Amendment even before Heller, um, and so um, it's a, it's a very substantial part of what I do. Um, I don't get involved in uh, abortion cases, um, and uh, you know, I've. I've been only tangentially sort of uh, aware of the various arguments and the, and the various criticisms and, and supporting arguments for Roe and Casey. Um, so it's, not, it's because it's not a part of my practice, it's not something I delve deeply into, but, but because, there are, because there are related concepts, so the idea of substantive due process, if you notice, if you read Roe, if you read um, Dobbs, um, there's an interesting relationship between the required historical analysis for substantive due process under uh, the, the cases that dealing with this historical approach, Washington versus Glucksburg, um, uh, uh, cases like that. There's actually an interesting relationship between those cases and the kind of historical history and tradition analysis that is required under the Second Amendment. It's interesting that the cases were decided together, not together, but they were decided in the same term. Um, and actually, it's very interesting because in his dissenting opinion, Justice Breyer, in dissenting opinion in Dobbs, Justice Breyer cites to the majority opinion in Bruin, um, talking about which historical examples are valid for gleaning the his history and tradition of a claimed right. Um, so he cites the Bruin slip opinion for the idea, for example, that the 13th century is not appropriate in order, in the 13th century historical example is not appropriate for understanding something that dates to the 19th century or the 18th century. Um, I thought that, it's funny because uh, I was thinking about that as I was reading it, I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? He's criticizing, um, he's criticizing a reference to a 13th century uh, historical event, but in Bruin, Breyer tries to cite to the 13th century statute of Northampton, and then he goes on the in the next mm. paragraph to cite to Bruin. So I thought that was actually very interesting right, right, that right. he connect. I was connect. Well, as I'm reading, I'm connecting the two cases, and he just goes on and connects them. In the next sentence. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of funny. Okay. Um, so, uh, so uh, to me, to me, Dobbs doesn't answer all the questions. Um, and 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 the the lack of delving into the Ninth Amendment to me is an important part of that. I haven't read a lot of that type of criticism of Dobbs or that type of discussion of whether Dobbs is good law, bad law, rightly decided, wrongly decided. To me, it's incomplete. I really think, and that by the way, that doesn't mean that the analysis changes, right? The court could say, oh, the Ninth Amendment works just like Washington versus Glucksburg, right? Just like substantive due process. That that's that's how we're going to do the Ninth Amendment. We used to call it substantive due process. Now we're calling it the Ninth Amendment, but it's exactly the same analysis. That could happen, right? If if the court ever embraces the Ninth Amendment, they could decide if we want to know what an unenumerated right is within the meaning of the Ninth Amendment, we're just going to do the same thing that we used to do and call it substantive due process. Right. Because in a sense, in a sense, 
that's sort of uh, that's sort of what Thomas is saying. He doesn't come right out and say it, but Thomas says this thing called substantive due process is so much nonsense. Um, we should revisit all of these substantive due process cases like Griswold and Eisenstadt, Lawrence and Obergefell, and maybe we'll find that those are rights if we look at maybe their privileges and immunities. So if we look at it under the Privileges and Immunities Clause, maybe these are rights that are uh, enforceable by the Constitution, but we can't, they're not, they're not uh, rights under the, substantive due, under the Due Process Clause. The Due Process Clause doesn't give substantive rights. So he allows for the possibility that the exact same kind of analysis might be done with the Privileges and Immunities Clause. But if you're going to do that analysis under the Privileges or Immunities Clause, you have to study the history of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. You don't look to the due process clause. You look to the privileges and immunities clause. Right. It's mechanically similar because you're looking as an originalist, you're looking to the original public meaning. So what was a privilege or immunity uh, at, in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified? And does that tell us something similar to what was concluded on what was determined under the due process clause. Similarly, with the Ninth Amendment, now importantly, the Ninth Amendment goes back to 1791. Now, for certain things that may not matter, right? The original public meaning of, of, a, of the Constitution in 1791, a particular provision, may be the same as it was in 1868. And when it comes to public carry of firearms for self-defense, it was. One of the things that the Bruin decision doesn't resolve, and this is something that uh, Justice uh, Barrett raises in her concurring opinion, is, well, the court says you have to do this history and tradition analysis to understand the scope of the right to keep mere arms, but do you look to 1791 when the Second Amendment was adopted, or do you look to 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted? Because the reason the Second Amendment right to keep mere arms is applicable to the states is because of the 14th Amendment. So do we care about the original public meaning in 1791? Or do we care about the original public meaning in 1868? The court in Bruin tells us that they don't have to decide that because it's the same in 1791 and 1868 as far as the right to self public self-defense goes. But what we learn from Dobbs is that the, uh, that the, situ the legal status of abortion was different in 1791 versus 1868. If you recall, when we were talking about it a few minutes ago, in 1791, the dividing line between criminality and non-criminality was quickening. quickening yeah. But what Alito tells us in his opinion is that by the time 18th, the 14th Amendment comes around, it's completely changed. By the time of the 14th Amendment in the mid 19th century, uh, abortion is broadly criminal you know, at all stages. So the whole concept of quickening has disappeared. So for that, it may matter whether you're talking about original public meaning when uh, the Constitution of the Bill of Rights was adopted versus when the 14th Amendment adopted. Therefore, it may matter if you're talking about the Ninth Amendment, which goes back to 1791 versus the 14th Amendment, which is 1868, if, if, if the understanding, if the public understanding of what rights we had changed dramatically during that time frame, it matters which provision of the constitution you're interpreting uh, as a matter of originalism. So the conversation of the discussion of all this stuff under the ninth amendment may matter. And it may be different than how we look at it under the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th amendment 
or the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. This is another reason why this would, somebody, in a, in a, it didn't even have to be in the majority, it could have been a concurring opinion. It would have been great if somebody would have raised this and said, you know, this is the, this kind of stuff we really need to be looking at the Ninth Amendment for. Right, right, gotcha. Okay, that was fantastic. Let me just quickly, if we could do this quickly, the last case I want to discuss, Kennedy versus Bremerton uh, School District. Now this, uh, to colloquialize it was the praying football coach. This is the case of the praying football coach right. who worked for a public school after uh, football games. He took a knee uh, on the field uh, and conducted a prayer circle, if that's appropriate terminology. Um, and basically the school district had warned him not to do it, uh, if I understand correctly. And uh, he continued to do it, so he was fired. Uh, he claimed this was a violation of his 1A rights towards expression of religion. Um, if I have the facts correct, Dan, give me your opinion on the case. Well, so what's very interesting about this case is that the facts matter a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, facts usually matter, but in, in a lot of constitutional uh, cases, the facts, the parties don't agree on, don't disagree on the facts, and it's all about the law. Right. In this case, the facts make an enormous difference. Um, if you read the majority opinion, the majority uh, characterizes the facts one way, and the dissent characterizes the facts differently. So if you, if you read the majority opinion, what the majority says is that the issue surrounds the district, pun the, the school district punishing the coach for his private but, but visible conduct. In other words, what he said was, what the guys, what, the, what uh, Kennedy said was, I would like to privately pray at midfield. And what the district said is, no, you can't private. So, so what, let me, let me uh, for the benefit of, of your audience, let me just lay out some of the, the facts. There had been a tradition at the school of prayer sessions um, in the locker room and motivational uh, speeches that had religious content with the team. So there was a history of the coach sort of having religious um, interaction with the team. As is typical in a lot of schools, by the way. But what happened here was that the school said, the school basically said, he, he, stopped, he, he stopped doing that stuff. There's a dispute as to whether, how much he stopped doing it. But the, the key is that the district, the school district acknowledges that what they were punishing him for was not the, the history of this, whether he was leading prayer or not. What they were punishing for was that he asked if he could do it privately um, on the field. They said no, and he did it anyway. That's what they said was the, was the source of the consequence of his suspension. And so the court, the majority, the, the, the court says, you know, that's the issue. The issue isn't, was he leading prayer? Were they joining him on the field? Um, the issue was the district said you cannot even privately pray if anybody can see you because we're afraid that that violates the establishment clause so for for your for your viewers uh just to just to make it just to clarify the freedom of religion in the first amendment has two pieces to it there's the free exercise clause that is people have a right to the free exercise of religion uh, without undue interference from the state but also there's the prohibition on the establishment of religion by the government and so governments can't establish religion 
and they also can't prevent people from engaging in free exercise of religion. So the, this case involves not only a tension between the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. Um, the coach was attempting to exercise his his rights under the free exercise clause by praying privately on, but on the field. And the school district was saying, we can't let you do that because if people see you praying because you're a school employee, we're afraid that we'll be in violation of the establishment clause because people will think that we are endorsing religion by letting our football coach publicly pray okay. at a school event. So, so that's, that's the, the facts as the majority describes the dissent describes it as he was being punished. He was be, the, the consequences to him, his suspension was because of his history of leading prayer with the team. And it's not simply um, that he wanted to pray privately, but that the but that he he was he was engaging in very very broadly in improper conduct under the establishment club. But he was leading prayer, he was encouraging prayer, he was inviting people to join in, he was doing a whole a whole series of things that that uh, was the problem. It's a great example of where the record can really determine how you look at the legal issue, hmm. um, which you know, the, 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 the majority is very clear on pointing out that although the, there's a history of those kinds of activities, um, the district themselves, the school district themselves said, we're only punishing you because of this narrow conduct. We are not punishing you uh, because of, of the history of leading prayer. Uh, we're punishing you because we said you can't even do it alone in the middle of the field as long as anybody's watching. And so that's a really good example of where the, the, uh, the two portions of the court are really talking about different things. Um, it's not a pure legal issue anymore. It's really what are the facts, what actually happened, hmm. and how, does, how do the facts implicate the, the constitutional rule that we have to apply. Um, now, what the majority ultimately said was, as I said, was that, that the, it is an overreading of a public entity's obligation under the, under the establishment clause to say that an individual engaging in purely private conduct cannot exercise his, uh, cannot freely exercise his right to free exercise of religion. And so the court said, look, even though he's a coach, it's unreasonable for the school to conclude that his private activity on the field is going to be attributable to the school. Um, you know, and so it is, it, is, it is overreaching for the school to try to say, you can't do it even privately because we're afraid that we're going to violate the First Amendment from that you do it. And so uh, the, the, the court held that was not a proper um, application of the establishment clause that the school had no right to prevent his private conduct and trying to ascribe it to the endorsement by the school was was not a correct application of the law so that's interesting because i always viewed it very strictly as it it's also being a coach the influence he has on his players for example was there and i don't know if this has any legal bearing in the case itself but would players feel obligated to join him in his prayer circle if they thought not doing so would lead to a demotion of playing time, for example, or the loss of their starting position on the team or something to that effect? Sure. And that goes, it goes, that goes to the issue of coercion, which is a relevant uh, issue in 
um, under uh, under uh, the establishment clause, right. right? And so what the court found was that there was no record of coercion. Um, and one of the reasons they found that um, was this idea that what he was being punished for was his individual conduct, right? So if the if if you take away the very important fact that he decided that he wanted to just go by himself to midfield and uh, and pray alone, if you take that out of the equation, it becomes a much more complicated case hmm. because then you really do have to 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 take to look at the history that the dissent looked at, and you have to look at well, he was leading prayer. Um, the you know, most of the team joined him at, uh, on the field to do it. What about the guy sitting on the bench? Did they feel, you know, did some people feel like they have to go out and join the coach? That, that, that gives rise to the issue of coercion and it raises important establishment clause concerns. Right. And so the fact, so the, so, the, so, the, so the court found there was no coercion and zeroed in on his private conduct. That combination of factors led to the result. And, um, and, and, and that's why the majority in the dissent were looking at it very differently. Interesting. Yeah. Because I uh, thank you for breaking that down, because initially I would have said, I don't know, they may have gotten this one wrong, you know, in, in terms of because I did feel that it was a violation of the Establishment Clause, uh, just given that the traditional sway a football coach in particular has over his players, that even if he walked out on his own, um, hey, look, I, I'm not necessarily into prayer circles, but if I was on that team and I was the starting quarterback, I'd probably follow the coach out there and take a knee, even if I didn't necessarily believe in what I was participating in just to maintain my position, especially if it meant the college scholarship or something to that effect. But yeah, and, and um, that's why the, the focus on his private conduct mattered a lot. Yes. Right? Because it, yeah. in fact, one of the one of the uh, there were two particular incidents a couple of days apart where that the court identifies in one of them, he's alone while the team is leading the crowd in like the school fight song, you know, right, right, right. they're leading the fight song and he's off praying by himself. That makes that, that makes an enormous difference factually as far as the court's concerned. And then there's another uh, one, I think a couple of days later, um, trying to remember from reading the case where I think he goes by himself and then some parents join him, mm. not players, but parents. Um, uh, again, the players are off doing something else. So, you know, I, I thought to myself, I'm reading the case and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I wonder what would happen, for example, if he's, no, I do, I do know what would have happened because, for example, um, one perhaps given the, the issues as, as they're presented, what happens if the, how do you deal with the fact that the kids are trying to join him on the field? Um, could they say to him, coach, if kids try, if the students try to join you on the field, can you turn to them and say, guys, fellas, I'm really, I'm really uh, touched by the fact that you want to come pray with me, but this is a personal moment for me. And I really appreciate it if you let me do this privately. Right. And then, so, you know, what, what player is not going to respect his coach's wishes? You know, if the coach says, Hey, this is a really private moment for me. I'd like to do this privately. Is that okay? If you let me we'll be here privately. And you know, what, what player would not say coach, you know, of course we're, right. we're, we're going to go over there, whatever, and do whatever. Um, but, but again, the issue for the district, because of their misunderstanding or misapplication of the establishment clause, what the district cared about is not who was with him, but what, who saw him. Mm. It's merely seeing him, an employee of the school, at a school event, engaging in prayer, 
they mis they they misunderstood and believed that 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 they had an obligation under the establishment clause to prevent that. Because that's not an establishment clause problem. Because the court said that that is not an establishment clause problem that the school is obligated to remedy. The case the the rule against private prayer gets analyzed under the rule that requires rules of general applicability, right? Mm -hmm. So if something is generally applicable, regardless of whether it implicates religion or not, it's more likely to survive uh, the constitutional uh, test. If it's not a rule of general applicability, and the court found that this wasn't, then suddenly you, you raise the issue of strict scrutiny, we talked about strict scrutiny mm-hmm. before. If it's not a rule of general applicability and it only applies to religious activity, then the then the state has to justify it under the very very high standard of strict scrutiny, which most laws do not or most actions do not survive. Right. Right. Okay. Thank you for explaining that for me. I've learned something, uh, which which is always seems to happen every day to me. I'm not that smart, but anyway. So let's close this out, Dan. Uh, first of all, thank you for everything. Uh, the 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 great way you've explained things. But now, well, let's do uh, the closing segment of the show, which I call silly questions. So let's start off rapid fire. Uh, no no need to uh, to explain all of these. Favorite justice in uh, SCOTUS history. I don't know if I have a favorite justice in SCOTUS history. I can tell you my current favorite justice is probably Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that if you had to pick, if you had to, de- to determine what justice is likely to sort of be characterized as the most libertarian, it's probably Gorsuch. Okay. Um, uh, I like Thomas in many respect, many times, but I don't always agree with him. Mm-hmm. I don't always agree with anybody, but I, I think I find myself in agreement with Gorsuch more than any other uh, justice. Fantastic. Uh, Gorsuch it is. Uh, favorite founding father? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, favorite founding father? Um, big fan of Jefferson? Mm-hmm. I kind of expected you might say Jefferson, yeah. Okay. Excellent. So I, I would have picked him too. Uh, all right. Favorite movie? Regardless of genre. Favorite movie, regardless of genre, is Annie Hall. Annie Hall. Fair enough. Yes. Annie Hall. Um, Woody Allen. Now, interestingly, import- importantly, it's not what it's not the movie that I think is the funniest of all movies, even though it's comedy, but it is my favorite mo- movie of all time. Fair enough. There are fair enough. Um, now, uh, a favorite band. Well... And I know it's hard. So if you have two or three, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of because I kind of have to say the Beatles, because just the way I grew up, and mm-hmm. the Beatles were, you know, I mean, there's so many great bands out there, of course, but uh, yeah. I'm going to say the Beatles. Excellent. Now, being a good uh, Bronx Science graduate alumni, I have to ask you, Star Trek or Star Wars? Well, I mean, both. But Star oh, that's Trek, cheating. That's cheating. Star Trek. And Star origi- Trek. Or, which series? Original? Uh, Next Generation? Deep Space Nine? Uh, I don't even know. Picard? Which one? I'm sorry. There's more than one? 
There's more. Th- oh, okay. Gotcha. The original it is then. Original series it is. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. I've had a great time and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time as well. Uh, sort of supplements our, our uh, conversations on Facebook a lot and uh, certainly keep up the good fight. Uh, if uh, Look, if something breaks in the future, uh, libertarian or constitutional wise, I'd love to have you back if you're willing to come back. And uh, thank you very much, buddy. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, John. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Check us out on the next episode of The Big Questions with Big John.